We are today uh, continuing the story in Genesis chapter 40 of Joseph's interpretation or the, the, the dreams of the two uh, Egyptian officials and Joseph's interpretation of their dreams, which constitutes the entire uh, chapter, chapter 40. And last week we looked at uh, the first dream. We looked at the arrival of the two officials in the prison where Joseph was, uh, beginning in verse 1 and down through about verse 15 that we looked at last week. And, uh, and then we looked at the dream of the cupbearer, what his dream was and what it meant uh, and how Joseph interpreted it and, uh, and things related to that. So, before we go on and read the last half of the chapter that we're going to look at today, go back and look down through those verses and uh, see what you remember about that we, that we talked about last week and, and uh, tell me what are some of the things that you thought about or that struck you or that you remember from last week. I was struck with the fact that the two dreams were significant to giving Joseph credibility. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that goes back to the comparison we made between the three sets of dreams in the story of Joseph. You have the uh, two dreams that Joseph has early on when he was 17, and then we have this two set of these two dreams that we're looking at uh, last week and this week, the dreams of the officials. And then we have, the, we have the third set of dreams that we'll look at next week, uh, excuse me, two weeks, uh, that we'll look at in two weeks uh, on the story of, of uh, Pharaoh's dreams. And we observe the differences, the distinctions between the first and the third set of dreams and the second set of dreams. And uh, one of them was the fact that there were that, that the dreams are really different or, or the interpretation of the dreams are different in this case. Whereas in the other two sets of dreams, the interpretation is the same. And as we were just observing, the reason for the different interpretation, the reason the difference in interpretation is significant in this case is because it confirms Joseph as an interpreter of dreams. Uh, what was, what's the purpose in the other two sets of dreams? What's the purpose of the second dream or having two dreams of the same interpretation? Okay, and and why is that necessary with those with those two sets of dreams, the first and the third, Joseph's dream and Pharaoh's dreams? Why is that necessary that they get that confirmation? Okay, which is going to go on for many, many years. Okay, so so 20 some years this is going to go on in his experience and he needs that confirmation from God. So uh, so, you know, in 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 the promises that God gives us in his word, sometimes he gives us the same promises over and over again. And the reason he does that is because we need to hear those promises. We need that confirmation as we go through the experiences we have in life. Why did Pharaoh need a confirmation? Okay. Okay. And uh, what really is it that Pharaoh needs to know? He needs to know he can trust Joseph's interpretation. 
Okay, okay, that's true. Uh, of course, he already has the confirmation from the cupbearer. We'll get into all this next in, in a couple of weeks when we get back in here. But, but why else? Why would it be important? What is, what is the really critical issue that he needs to know as the ruler of Egypt? Okay, about what? Okay, what he really needs to know is there's going to be bad times. And he needs somebody to prepare them for the bad times, okay? But before the bad times comes what? Pardon? He needs a good manager, okay? What comes before the bad times? The good times. How many? How much good time? See, we see. I don't even need to teach this lesson in a couple of weeks. You guys know this all, right? Okay. Yeah. He's so he's going to have seven years of plenty. So. After you've had five or six or seven years of plenty, what are you thinking? This is the norm, right? So he needed the confirmation of the, of the second dream to reinforce, listen, this is only going to last seven years and then it's going to turn really bad. Okay? So, uh, so he needs the confirmation so that he's not lulled into the security of the seven years of plenty. Okay? So... So the, the first set of dreams and the third set of dreams both needed the second dream in order to confirm the message. The difference with the two dreams that we're looking at last week and this week is, is it's not so much the message that needs confirmation because it's going to happen immediately. It's going to happen within three days. So it's not so much the message that needs confirmation, but it is the messenger that needs confirmation. And by by Joseph interpreting two dreams that on the surface look very similar, and we'll talk about that today, by interpreting two dreams that on the surface look very similar, Joseph has the wisdom and has the Spirit of God to discern the distinctions between the two dreams and to give opposing or opposite interpretations. And it shows his skill and his gift as an interpreter of dreams. And that will become important as we will see when we get into chapter 41. We'll see that that's that's uh, part, of the, uh, part of the convincing factor that convinces Pharaoh that he can trust this guy to interpret his dreams. Okay? So what else did we talk about last week? Joseph being in charge did not mean he was in charge. Okay. So he's been given responsibility, but he's still got people over him. He's got the chief jailer over him, and he's still got Potiphar over him. Potiphar is still uh, responsible for him. What responsibility did we see last week that Potiphar entrusted to Joseph while he's in prison? Well, at least the care of these two very important people. Okay. Okay, so we have these two officials, these two high Egyptian officials. And, you know, the butler and baker, that doesn't sound very high to us. And in our culture today, it isn't. But in those days, if you were Pharaoh's butler and baker, you were pretty important characters. And these two very important officials have now been put into Potiphar's prison. And Potiphar assigns Joseph to be responsible and to care for these guys. Okay. What is it? What does it say to us about Joseph that he's given this responsibility and that he carries it out and does it so diligently? Yeah. Yeah, he's trusting God. He's got a servant's heart. You know, you know, just to be honest with you, if it were me, 
You know, if I were in Joseph's place, I think by this time I'd just go over and sit in the corner of the jail and sulk. I mean, I've gotten every bad thing handed to me, okay, by this point. My brothers had betrayed me. They throw me in a pit. They sold me into slavery. I get into Egypt and I claw my way back up to some kind of respectability. And then I'm falsely accused and I'm thrown into prison and I've been here for years. And, you know, and the last thing I... I mean, I would hope I would be like Joseph, but I would be sorely tempted just to say, you know, God, you know, I've had it. <laughs> I'm fed up. And you keep giving me this raw deal, and I'm just going to go over in the corner and sulk. And Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph, even when he gets all this ugly stuff thrown at him in his life, somehow still goes, God, I love you. I'm going to honor you. And I'm going to work hard to be a blessing bearer in the lie, to the lives of others in spite of everything that's happened in my life. It's really, really to me, it's amazing. Joseph is such an amazing guy. So, so these guys cross his path. And he doesn't just take it as just some kind of weird coincidence and blow it off, but he... But, but he sees that these people that God brings into his life, that he has an obligation and he has a responsibility and he has a duty to them. And so we talked last week about how God brings people across our paths. And the question is, you know, when we've had a rotten day, you know, when we've gotten everything's gone bad and, and, and uh, you know, it's the kind of day when we wish we'd never gotten out of bed and then... And then God brings somebody across our path. How do we treat them? Do we, do we take it out on them that we've had a bad day? Or do we take that as an opportunity to be a blessing bearer to them? <clears throat> and that's what we see in life, Joseph. Anything else from last week? No, Rick, I, this isn't actually directly from last week. I, don't, I left partway through it. I don't know if you're going to deal with it this week or whatever, but it's certainly part of the story. As I was reading through it this morning, and it reminded me again of Joseph's faith. And it's real easy for me, and I do this all the time, I don't know if any of you guys do, I look back and I think, okay, these guys, they had something happen and they knew, and so they didn't have to exercise faith. They just knew that it was going to be this way, and so they interpreted this dream, or they did, you know, they spoke this thing that God told them whatever it is. But I realized, again, Joseph acted by faith. He didn't know. He believed. He trusted. And that's, that's very amazing to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very precarious position to be in, to yeah. not know that yet, by faith, you're speaking this dream interpretation that has huge consequences yeah. if you're wrong. Yeah. And, of course, likewise, if you're correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we'll explore that some more today in today's lesson. But that is a striking thing. He's just moving forward by faith. You know, it's a credit to God. Yeah. Interpretation of God. Yeah. Says, tell me, and I, I will tell you. Yeah. What it means. Yeah. God that belongs to God. Tell me. He he gives the credit to God. Yeah. Yeah. Rick, I remember your uh, illustration of the store line. Oh. So I went in the bank this week, <laughs> trying to hurry up and get home, beat the traffic, and walk in. And there's a huge line, one teller. I'm standing there, and some guys, the tellers, come here, come here. And the guy's got problems, and they're sitting there. And it came to mind. 
<laughs> well, actually, now that you mention it, I didn't do so well at the bank this week. <laughs> I pulled up, this was uh, Friday evening, and I pulled up at the drive-thru. I won't mention which bank, but I pulled up at the drive-thru, and I was the, I mean, I pulled up, and, you know, it's four lanes there, and they're all empty. And I go, great, you know, and so I whipped right up into the commercial line, you know, and I stopped there to do my bank business, and I waited. And I waited and I waited and then another car pulled in next to me and a car next to them and a car next to them, you know, and I'm waiting and I'm and and I'm looking through the window, but the tent so I can't really see what's going on, but I can see that they're waiting on people coming in from the other side, you know, the walk ins, but they're I finally drove off. (laughs) So. uh, you know, it's easier to preach this stuff than it is to live. <laughs> but uh, at least I didn't say anything inappropriate. I just I said, I'll go somewhere else. I went to another bank. So, at any rate, but <laughs> thanks for making me feel guilty, Mike. <laughs> anything else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we talked about we talked about lamentations in the life of the believer. It came, comes up from Joseph here because here Joseph is in this situation and then he finds out that this guy is going to be restored and so then he makes he makes two pleas. Do you remember what his two pleas were? Okay, his first plea is is remember me. He pleads for help. He says, please remember me. Show me kindness. Okay. And his second plea is what? It's a plea of innocence. I am innocent. I'm not here because of anything I've done. I didn't do something back in the land of the Hebrews and then flee as a fugitive. Uh, and I'm here in prison. I didn't do anything. So he makes a plea of innocence. So we, so we see that even though he's a man who walks by faith, who trusts God, that doesn't preclude him making these pleas. It doesn't preclude him saying, hey, I'm innocent. I don't deserve this. So, so being a man or a woman of faith in, in difficult situations doesn't mean that we just kind of sit there and just take it without any self-defense or any, uh, any attempt to alleviate the problem. And, and as we were talking about that, we, we talked about the issue of lamentations. That, that in the experience of the believer, believer we, we face oftentimes many situations that are just completely overwhelming. And, and sometimes we have this hyper-spiritualized view of things that we should just kind of just go, oh, bless the Lord, you know, everything's okay, and, you know, it'll all work out, and, and just and act like it doesn't hurt. But it does hurt, folks. And if you're pretending it doesn't hurt, you're pretending. Okay. And there is a there is a great deal in Scripture where we see the child of God crying out in pain, crying out in anguish, saying, "Why, God? 
How long, God? Okay. And, of course, the Psalms are full of uh, many different Psalms of lamentation. Of course, there's many Psalms of praise and that sort of thing, and even praise in difficult situations, and there's a place for that. But, but the point we wanted to bring out last week is, is there's a place in the life of the believer for lamentation. There's a place in the life of the believer for crying out and saying, God, this is more than I can take. Of course, it isn't. We know that, but we feel that. And it's okay to tell God that. It's okay to ask God why. It's okay to ask God how long. And we see that over and over again in the Lamentations in the Psalms. Okay? What else? Anything else? I think the main thing I've got to have is pretty much about was that timing. You pointed out it seems to kind of relate to that. You've done a good job for somebody or good things and you just kind of above and beyond you ask them to remember you and they forget. And, uh, you know, if I'd have been those, if I'd have been you know, the next day waiting for somebody to come get me or the next day and really just fuming if the guy had forgotten me. And, uh, you know, I never thought about it. The guy had come back immediately, you know, just let him out. He was going home. That would the end of the story. Yeah. It would have been, it would have been the end of the story as we know it, but it, but, you know, I think, I think about, yeah, it would have been a different story. I, I think about the havoc that it would have wreaked back home, you know. Because uh, this, this is before the Judah-Tamar thing is resolved. So this is before Ju- Judah has begun to see what a sinner he is. And he begins to recognize how wrong he's been. So it's before Judah has reached this point of repentance in his life that we'll see manifested as we go forward in the story. But it's, all, it's before that's happened. Even though we've already studied the story of Judah and Tamar, that part of the story doesn't happen until after this that we're looking at today. And, and if he'd gone back home, uh, the crime that his brothers had committed would have been exposed before they were ready to repent. I cannot imagine the havoc it would have. And so instead of his life being a life of blessing and salvation to his family, it would have wreaked havoc within the family. All the people that would have yeah, and all the people that would have perished, he would not have he would not have been able to 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 act as the redeemer in the life of his family. He would not have been able to act as the redeemer in the life of the Egyptians, in the life of Potiphar, in the life of Potiphar's wife. He would not have been able to act as a redeemer on behalf of the world, the entire world around Egypt that was saved, because he waited two years for this guy to remember him. So, yeah, it's an, I think it's an important part of the lesson. We'll touch on that a little bit more today. Well, that's last week's lesson, okay? And today we pick up the story in verse uh, 16 and let's uh, just start reading there down to the end of the chapter. It says, When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket, there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. And the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh off you. 
Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Okay? Well, there's a couple things I want to do with this passage today. First, we, we just need to examine the event here, what happened, and we need to understand the meaning of this, the significance of it. But also, as the Lord gives us time, I'd like to kind of back up a little bit and look at the, the whole story of the two, uh, two officials and their dreams and the interpretation. Uh, because I, as, as I was studying it this week, I was just, I was just really struck by a, a metaphor that it presents to us that I think is instructive. So, uh, as the Lord gives us time, I want to take some time and look at this, the metaphor that this provides and, and when I say that, I don't, I don't want to say that, that suggest that the metaphor is, is uh, the interpretation or the meaning of the passage. But I think we can see some instructive things here as we as we look at the metaphor. But but first of all, we have the 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 uh, baker and he has now witnessed uh, the cupbearer telling his dream and he's witnessed Joseph's interpretation. And what's his response? Okay, okay. So, now he's ready to tell his dream, okay? What do you see implied in the way it describes it there about the baker telling his dream? Okay, okay. And it almost seems like there's a reticence there, doesn't it? It seems like he wasn't ready to jump in and tell his dream first, okay? He's, he's going to wait and see what happens with the cupbearer's dream. Okay? So he, he allows the cupbearer to tell his dream. And once he sees that the cupbearer gets a favorable interpretation, then he goes, okay, now I can tell my dream. Because okay? he really doesn't want to get a bad interpretation. Okay? He just wants to get a good interpretation. So he'd rather get no interpretation than a bad interpretation, right? And there's a couple things that are interesting to me here about the baker is is that he kind of he kind of he's he's one of those kind of people who kind of picks and chooses what he hears, right? Now the cupbearer, he's willing to hear whatever, you know, I just need to know, okay? But the baker, he's the kind of guy who he he picks his message and he will only listen to the messages that are favorable. Something else that strikes me about the cupbearer that, or excuse me, the baker here that, that, I, that I think we see in this reticence that he has and then once he hears the positive interpretation, then he goes, okay, I'll, I'll tell this guy my dream, is, uh, is I think he's making the mistake that it's oftentimes very easy to make is he's, making the mistake that the interpretation originates with the messenger and not with the message. 
So he's thinking, okay, this guy gives favorable interpretations, and since this guy gives favorable interpretations, I can share my dream with him. If he doesn't give favorable interpretations, I'm not going to give. I'm not going to ask for the meaning of my dream. So it's like he's, it's like he's. He's, he's made the mistake of thinking that the message originates from the messenger. But the message doesn't originate from the messenger, does it? We, we oftentimes make that mistake. That's why we have the cliche about, you know, kill the messenger. You know, that is, if you kill the messenger, you've killed the message, right? But the message doesn't originate from the messenger. And as you and I are responsible conveyors of a very important message, we need to remember the message doesn't originate from the messenger. Now, when we share with people the message, they may make the mistake that the cupbearer, that the baker makes here. They may make the mistake of thinking that the message originates with us, but it does not originate with us. And so we're really not free to adjust the message, are we? Joseph isn't free to give whatever interpretation he wants because the message doesn't originate from him. Richard, yeah. example of that, I think, Joseph last week, I think it was, talking about spiritual things when a guy works and says, oh, well, I, I don't judge people. Well, I don't either. We fall into that trap ourselves when somebody comes to us and tells us something we don't want to hear and we, we kind of take personal offense at the person rather than, than listening carefully to the message. So it's very easy to do. Okay. Well, so then he describes his dream. And what does his dream consist of? Okay. Starts out, he's got three baskets of bread on his head, okay? So he's carrying, and they're, you know, one on top of the other. There's three baskets of bread on his head. And, you know, I'd kind of like to see this. But, uh, but, uh, but actually, it was common. In fact, what's interesting is, is we know from archaeology that in, in Egypt, the men would carry, uh, carry loads on their head. Men, the women would carry loads on their shoulders. So it's kind of interesting that that, uh, that that distinction is observed here. And then as the narrator tells the story, he's got this dream and he's got these three, three baskets of bread. Now, why, why bread? He's a baker, okay? He's a baker, okay? So he has these three baskets of bread, but in the top basket, what does he have? All sorts of bread. Okay. Again, from archaeology, we know that the Egyptians had at least 38 different kinds of cakes and 57 different kinds of bread that they would eat. Okay. So they had a whole array of, of baked goods that they were known for, or that they uh, consumed in their culture. And in, in the top basket, we see that it says that he said, uh, he said there were some... Of all sorts of baked food. So he has in the top basket, you know, in the other baskets, he just had bread apparently. But in the top basket, he has this plethora of breads and cakes and whatever. Okay, so he has this really, uh, this, this great abundance of food in the top basket. And who is it for? It's for Pharaoh. Okay, so, so he has all this abundance of food, of baked goods, baked food. 
for Pharaoh in his top basket. And then the final part of the dream is what? Okay. The birds are coming and they are eating all of this food that is ostensibly for Pharaoh. Okay. And the birds are eating that food. Okay. Now, one of the things that's interesting is here is the baker and he's the chief baker. He's Pharaoh's chief baker, right? And he has these baskets on his head. Of course, it's a dream. It's not real. But he has these baskets on his head and he has all this food for Pharaoh in the top basket. And the birds are coming and eating the food. Okay. Does anything strike you as out of order there? Or something not right about this? Okay, so why isn't he protecting Pharaoh's bread? Okay, he's, you know, he could be shooing the birds away. But what we notice about the baker in contrast with the cupbearer is the, the baker in his dream is completely passive. He's not doing anything. The cupbearer in his dream actually reaches out and squeezes the grapes into the cup and then puts the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Remember? Okay, but the baker is doing nothing. He's not frightening away the birds. He's not trying to scare them away. He's not, you know, protecting the, the food in any way. He's just allowing Pharaoh's food to be eaten. Okay. And it's kind of interesting. Several of the commentators point out the contrast between the baker's dream and the story of Abraham in Genesis 15. Remember the story of Abraham in Genesis 15 when Abraham is, is wanting to ask God, how do I know all this stuff is going to happen? <clears throat> and so God propositions that they, they enter into a covenant together. And so in Genesis 15, Abraham enters into a suzerain vassal covenant with God. Okay? And the way he does, it is, does this is the way it was typically done in the day. He splits the carcass. He takes these animal sacrifices. He splits the carcasses. He lays them down in two rows uh, and separates them. And then he waits because God hasn't told him what else to do. You know? So he's waiting for God to show up so they can walk through the carcasses together, which is the way a covenant of that nature was typically agreed to. Okay? So he's waiting there and he's waiting. And as he's waiting, what happens? The birds come in to eat the carcasses, okay? And what does Abraham do? He shoes them away, okay? So what we see with Abraham is he's, he's protecting the sacrifice or he's protecting the carcasses until whatever happens, happens. And eventually he goes to sleep and then he has the vision of God coming down and walking between the carcasses, which is God's way of unilaterally uh, confirming the covenant with Abraham. But... But what's striking there is that with Abraham, we have this protection of the thing that he's responsible for. But with the baker, we have none of that. He's just standing there with these baskets on his head and the birds eating out of the basket. Okay. So that's the dream. Now, before we get to the interpretation of the dream, I want to think a little bit about... a the comparisons and the contrast between the baker's dream and the cupbearer's dream. Okay? Uh, what are the similarities? How are they similar? Okay. Obviously, the number three. There's a, uh, the uh, three branches on the vine in the, in the uh, cupbearer's dream and we have the three baskets in the baker's dream. How else are they similar? 
Okay, it, their their respective occupations are represented. The 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 cupbearer's position of being a cupbearer is represented in his dream. Okay, the baker's position as a baker is rep. So their respective occupations are represented. Okay, uh, and what else? Now this may be a little a little more subtle, a little hard to pick up, but but I think of at least one other similarity. You may see some others. Okay, but I'm talking about the dream itself. How, how are the dreams similar? One of them is actually typically before the Pharaoh, and the other one is not. Okay, and that would be a contrast. That would be a contrast between them. But what is significant is they are both in their dream. They're both a part of the dream, okay? Uh, that'll be a little bit different from Pharaoh. In Pharaoh's dream, he's actually in the dream, but, but it's, he, he's kind of irrelevant to the dream. He's just watching it from the side, as we'll see next, uh, next uh, when we get into 41. But, but these guys are actually participants in their dream in some sense, okay? But the contrast between the dreams are interesting, too. And what strikes me is I think that the, cup, that the baker looks at the similarities of their dreams and thinks, well, I, you know, my dream's kind of like his dream and he got a positive interpretation, so I'm going to get a positive interpretation too, a favorable interpretation. But in fact, there are some pretty striking contrasts between their dreams. What are those? Okay. Okay, so the so the 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 cupbearer is actually active in his dream. He's doing something, and he's actually, as you say, giving to Pharaoh. With the baker, he's passive. He's doing nothing. Okay, except just standing there. Okay, so there's this this contrast, and and instead the instead of things being Instead of him giving something to Pharaoh, something of Pharaoh's is supposedly of Pharaoh's is being taken away from him. Okay, what else? I guess we call it uh, the intent of men's kind of like um, Cain and Abel. Uh, even though they both gave um, they gave something to God, God wasn't saying to Cain, "Look, how I gave Abel better." obvious, but you may kind of kick yourself if you didn't notice this or didn't mention it. You do notice it, obviously, but where's Pharaoh? Okay. In the first dream, Pharaoh's there, right? In the second dream, Pharaoh's nowhere to be seen. Okay. Pharaoh's, except for the fact that the, we know who the, who the goods are for up there in that top basket. Uh, aside from that, Pharaoh's irrelevant in this dream. He's, 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 he doesn't play any, any role at all in the second dream. Okay. Uh, another contrast just so we can kind of keep moving along another contrast is there are no birds in the first dream right 
There are no birds in the first dream, but there are birds in the second dream. Well, what, why is that significant? Pardon? Yeah, birds uh, oftentimes in Scripture are an image of the judgment of God. Okay, so we see that in in the Old Testament prophets. We see it in Revelation. We see that birds are an image that God uses of his judgment on people. Okay, so we have the presence of of birds in the second dream. We don't have the presence of birds in the first dream. Well, so there are these similarities and there are these differences between the two dreams. Now. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Joseph just sat down and got his piece of paper out and he wrote the pros and the cons and the contrast and the differences and, he, and then he figured it out. That's not how Joseph came up with his interpretation. Joseph came up with his interpretation because it was given to him by the Holy Spirit. Okay, God gave him the interpretation. We look back on it now and we go, oh, well, of course, you know, it's obvious, right? We're going to do the same thing when we get to Pharaoh's dreams. I mean, it's just so obvious that's what they mean. You know, who wouldn't know that? You know, well, like uh, Jim was pointing out, we walk by faith. And, and Joseph really, apart from God opening this up to him and showing it to him, he had no way of knowing this. We can look back at it now and analyze it and say, oh, we see all these connections and that sort of thing. But, but Joseph speaks up and... And he gives the interpretation. Now, the first thing that strikes me about Joseph in this is that he even gives the interpretation, right? Uh, just think about what if you were there? What if you were Joseph? Okay. And you had this first very high government official, you know, some, you know, cabinet member or somebody gets thrown in prison with you and they have a dream and you interpret their dream and it's really good. You know, he's going he's gonna to get out. The president's going to pardon him and he's going to be reinstated in his position as secretary of state or whatever. And that's a fun interpretation to give, right? And then you have the other guy, you know, he's the attorney general and he's in there with you and you got to give his interpretation and uh, he tells you his dream and you go, well, I know what this means. This means this guy is going to be beheaded and then impaled on a tree until the birds eat the flesh off his bones. Would you give that interpretation? <laughs> That's a good point. It's a good point. One of the things that strikes me about Joseph is his courage. Because to Joseph, the message has nothing to do with him. He's just the message bearer. He's just the messenger. That's all he is. And he has a duty and he has an obligation just to convey the message. What happens to him is irrelevant. That's not how we look at it, is it? We're all obsessed with, if I tell people this, what will they think of me? What will they say to me? What will they do to me? But Joseph is so courageous that even though this is a horrific interpretation to give to a guy and to tell him it's going to happen in three days, 
It's a, it's a horrific interpretation. And yet Joseph just courageously gives it. Why did he do that? Because he's an honorable man. Okay. That's obviously the first answer. Why else? Well, I was just wondering. They've been in there a while. And you kind of wonder if he was taking care of them, if they kind of maybe developed a friendship even. And he maybe have felt obligated. You know, I need to, I need to tell him. This isn't okay. revealed anywhere in Scripture. Okay. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, okay. What were you going to say, Mike? Well, I was just wondering. He did it so bluntly. You know, <laughs> like You're right. Right. You think you'd say, well, I really apologize. I'm sorry to bring this to you, but I mean, here it's just like, oh, you're going to get, you know, one sentence, but then give us an abbreviated version of what actually happens or we assume it does in many places. Uh, so uh, that's a good question. But yeah, Ginger. Well, I'm just thinking of the banker. You know, would you want to know? I, I would, yeah. You would want to know maybe to get your affairs in order, but also to say, maybe I can stay around in three days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you also haven't answered my question. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, even though he's a bold candidate, some, as some people look at it, I think he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to do that. Okay. You know, I, I don't think this was a matter of, you know, I have a choice here or whatever. And just like the individual was saying about his Joseph's faith and all that, you know, Joseph said, you know what? My, my life is predicated on good or bad. It's predicated on what God gives me. Yeah. And also, you look at the fact that Joseph, a man of integrity, as this young man said, um, he also said to himself probably something in the line of, um, uh, regardless of how I, you know, how I approach this, this is, again, this is this is God's providence. This yeah. is God's sovereignty yeah. that compelled him to speak this. Yeah. Um, so another thought I have, like, just well, that's true. And actually, that isn't where I was going, but that's point. Yeah, that is a point. There is no confirmation if he doesn't give the interpretation. But the other reason he gave the interpretation, because he doesn't know that that's going to be an issue, that particular thing, he doesn't know at this point that's going to be an issue. But the other reason he gives it is quite simply, folks, it's the truth. It's the truth. And this guy needed to hear the truth. And and jo- and Joseph just has a sense of obligation to the truth. Now, let me just kind of add a caveat here. The scripture doesn't tell us this, okay? But I just, you know, I just don't see Joseph as taking any delight in this. Okay? From what we know of Joseph so far, I don't I don't see him taking any pleasure in this. You know, we've all seen, we've known the people, you know, the so-called Bible thumpers that just love preaching hell, damnation, and you know, you're going to go to hell because you're so... And, they, and there's, there's a sadistic pleasure they get in preaching the judgment of God. And I am reminded of what the prophet says when he says that God does not delight in the death of any man, but rather that he would repent 
and live. And I, I saw, so I may be reading between the lines here a little bit, but I don't see any pleasure in Joseph as he feels the obligation and the responsibility and the duty to God and to the baker to tell this man the interpretation of his dream. <clears throat> so, so he tells him the interpretation and it's, you know, it couldn't be much worse. <laughs> you know, it really couldn't be much worse. And, and then we just fast forward. Three days. Okay. So there's, as much as we'd like to know, you know, what went on in those intervening three days, what did Joseph do? What did the baker do? You know, what did they say? You know, what, what did he think about? You know, we don't know any of that because all of that is not really particularly germane to the story. But we fast forward three days and it's Pharaoh's birthday. Now, actually, the word that's used there could mean it was it's actually his birthday as we think of a birthday or it could have been the anniversary of his ascension to the throne. Okay, so it could have been the celebration of his ascension to the throne, which for the Pharaoh also means ascension to deity. Okay, so anyway, it's a big day. It's either his birthday or the day he's celebrating that he became a god. Okay, so it's it's one of those two. Okay, so it's a big day. So so he throws a birthday party for himself. Okay, he throws a great feast for all of his servants. And in the course of this celebration, the scripture says, according to Joseph's words, he lifts up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker. Mean two entirely different things, right? Okay. And we talked about that last week. When he said to the chief cupbearer that Pharaoh was going to lift up his head, it was used in the sense that the psalmist uses when he says, the Lord is the one who lifts my head. It's you know, here's a guy who is bowed down. His circumstances have him completely bowed down. And Pharaoh is going to restore him and lift him up and lift his head. So that's the sense in which it's used in reference to the cupbearer. But in reference to the baker, there's another little word that's inserted in there when he says he's going to lift up your head from you. <laughs> okay. And it has an entirely different sense to it. Okay. And so we're on this third day. And we don't know what kind of judicial process went on. We have no idea, you know, what prompted Pharaoh to do one thing for one and one thing for the other. None of that is revealed to us. But as was typically done on a great day of celebration for a great king or emperor or somebody like that, he, he takes the opportunity to demonstrate his greatness, okay? And the way that Pharaoh demonstrates his greatness on his birthday in this particular case is by showing his magnanimity and his grace to the cupbearer and showing his justice through the baker. Okay? So, and it's kind of interesting here because the, some of the commentators at this point say, well, it's obvious that the cupbearer was innocent and the baker was guilty. And so the cupbearer was restored and the baker was found guilty and so he was punished. There's a couple major problems with that. 
One is that the very first verse we looked up and looked at in chapter 40 said that both of them had offended Pharaoh. And when we get into chapter 41, when the cupbearer finally does get around to talking to Pharaoh about Joseph, he's going to say, I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to venture to speak of my sins. So the cupbearer, when he, as we will see, when he addresses Pharaoh about Joseph, refers back to his being in prison and his encounter with Joseph in prison and and he refers to his sins against Pharaoh. Okay. So clearly he's not been exonerated. He's not been found guilty. He's been pardoned. Okay. And and so what's striking here about the outcome of these two with these two guys is is they're both guilty. They both sinned against Pharaoh. But one of them is forgiven and restored and the other is not forgiven and is destroyed and executed. And, in, and again, we don't know the background of all that. We don't know what's going on in Pharaoh's mind. We don't know if he liked the hair color on one of them and he didn't. We don't know what, how he made his decision. All we know is that these two guys represent two things about Pharaoh. His, his magnanimity and his great and his graciousness and his and, and and his ability to forgive on one hand and on the other hand we see Pharaoh's great insistence on justice that justice be done. Well so the we'll come back to that in just a minute. So the Cupbearer now ends up restored. And of course, the first thing he does once he gets there is he goes to Pharaoh and talks to him about Joseph, right? Notice how it emphasizes he did not remember, but he forgot. It says it twice. He did not remember, but he forgot. And then this brings us back to that closing point that we were on last week is you know how unjust that seems you know how, how quick we are to forget you know the good things that God does in our life and you know I think of the story of the ten lepers and God or the Lord Jesus heals the ten lepers and you know and they all go running off and then one of them, one of them goes oh yeah and he remembers and he goes back but the other ten you know Jesus is kind of irrelevant you know so, so it's not completely surprising, but it is rather disgusting that this guy cannot remember for three days the favor that he was shown by Joseph. Okay, so, but it's a good thing for Joseph, and it's a good thing for Joseph's family, and it's a good thing for the Egyptians, and it's a good thing for the rest of the world that he didn't remember, because by not remembering for two years. God is able to complete His plan of redemption for all those people. I have a philosophical point, but we probably don't have time to discuss it now. But I have to bring it up anyway. The statement you just made was actually made earlier too. And it presumes that God will not do it in any other way. I, I, it seems to presume that, but I don't presume that. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. we're just saying, okay, if Joseph hadn't done this, if this hadn't happened to Joseph, then these people would have perished. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. So that's a, that's a philosophical position that we see yeah. represented in the church broadly. Yeah. No, actually, I think the I think the point of the providence of God is God is able to do what He wants to do, mm-hmm. but that does not mean that we are not responsible for what we do. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that's like Peter, he's got so strong that you can't get yeah. a rock and you can't pick up. You don't have that. Yeah. Well, actually, that is a spiritual question, and there is an answer to that one. <laughs> but, but you're right. We don't have time to go into that. <laughs> Boy, that's good. Um, <laughs> but there's, a, but let me get, uh, let me get to the, to the thing that really strikes me about this whole story. Because we only got a couple minutes left. This this just kept jumping out at me the last couple three days as I've been looking at this story. It just you know, and I and I kept trying to I kept going back and saying, now Lord, I want the you know, what's the meaning? What do you you know? And, and that's what I'm trying. But in addition to that, this metaphor just kept jumping out at me. This is a striking meta- metaphor to us of the condition of the righteous and the wicked in judgment. Here we have the cupbearer, I mean the baker. And he doesn't want to hear about it, does he? He doesn't want to hear bad news. He only wants to hear the good news, right? How many people do we know who are thrilled to believe the Bible when it speaks about the love of God? but are unwilling to believe the Bible when it speaks about the judgment of God. So they, so they are a fulfillment of exactly what Paul said would happen when he, in, in 2 Timothy 4 when he says they will accumulate teachers according to their desires and according to their itching ears. People just pick their teachers according to what they think they're going to hear. And that's what we see with the baker. He's just he's just, he's trying to be picky here, and he thinks, okay, I got a guy here that's going to give me a favorable interpretation. This guy's going to tell me Pharaoh loves me, and so I listen to him. And what we see with the wicked as they uh, 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 and the unrighteous as as they are approached with the message of the gospel, what they want to believe is they want to believe the love of God, and they'll make fun of. All the other places in Scripture, the things that are hard to believe, the Jonah and the whale or Noah and the flood or the wrath of God in judgment and revelation, they'll laugh at all that stuff, but they'll be willing to talk to you all day about the love of God. Another thing that strikes me in this metaphor, if you will, is that both the cupbearer and the baker were guilty. Every person who goes to heaven has offended God. Every person who goes to heaven doesn't go to heaven because they were good, because they were innocent. They're going to heaven because of the magnanimity and the grace of God. That's why they're going to heaven. The cupbearer 
that did not get restored to his position because he was innocent. He was restored to position because Pharaoh was gracious to him. And likewise, the baker was judged and condemned because he was guilty. Because he had, in fact, sinned or offended Pharaoh. And so we see this, this kind of metaphor, and there's a lot, actually a lot more to it that we, that we don't really have time to, <clears throat> to look at this, um, uh, this morning, but <clears throat> just one or two other things. One that strikes me is, <clears throat> is as this death of the baker is described in the interpretation, it's a horrific death. It is a shameful death. It is a de- uh, disgracing, debasing death. And, and when the wicked do venture at times <clears throat> to briefly contemplate a righteous God and judgment for sin, what do they do? They laugh about it, don't they? They laugh about it and they say, well, at least if I'm going to be in hell, I'm going to be in hell with all my friends. But what the picture that we get here and the picture, of course, that we get when we get to Revelation and other places on judgment is that the judgment on the wicked is a judgment that reveals how utterly disgraceful they have been in their sin against God. There's nobody who's going to go to hell who's going to have any honor left to them. All their honor will be stripped away. So all their good deeds and everything they did to try and build up this reputation on earth and have people think well of them, when they face the judgment of God, all that honor will be stripped away. And they will have the birds eat the flesh off their bones, metaphorically speaking. Well, the other striking thing in this metaphor is that this guilty cupbearer ends up in the presence of Pharaoh putting the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And the marvelous thing that's available to us is that though we are as guilty as anybody who will spend eternity in hell, by the mercy and the grace of God, we will be in His presence. And we will have the opportunity to serve Him, put the cup in His hands. Ginger. Very important point here. The difference between the two is that I didn't see it in the scripture, but the cup there is tempted. Because when He said years later, I think you're saying, you know, oh, my sin. Yeah. Well, yeah, we don't. That is an interesting point on his comment to Pharaoh then later in chapter 41 is it does. It does seem that at some point he recognizes. Yeah, I was wrong. So, yeah, that's a good point. Well, uh, next week, the men will have their breakfast and uh, and you women will uh do whatever women do when they're together, <laughs> and uh, and then in t- in two weeks, 
I do have I do have study sheets. Uh, I do have study sheets for you before you leave. Uh, and in two weeks, we'll pick it up in chapter 41.